Just give us one hour, and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. We love hearing from our listeners. In fact, we are one million strong, and we want to hear from you. Connect with us at Lisa Kamen on Twitter and HH Talk Radio, or tweet at us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Alrighty then, let's get to it. Today we are focused on addiction, addiction and healing. And this is something that we cover from time to time, and many people question me. They say, oh, you talk about addiction, the dark side on a show about happiness. And really what we're talking about is the human heart, the, the soul, the, the seed of where we live as humans within humanity. And in the studio today, I am deeply honored and grateful to have the presence of Dr. Gabor Mate. For 12 years, Dr. Mate worked in Vancouver's downtown east side with patients challenged by hardcore drug addiction, mental illness, and HIV including Vancouver's supervised injection site. With over 20 years of family practice and palliative care experience and extensive knowledge of the latest findings of leading-edge research, Dr. Mate is a sought-after speaker and teacher, regularly addressing health professionals, educators, and lay audiences throughout North America. Dr. Mate has written several best-selling books, including the award-winning in the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, When the Body Says No, The Cost of, of Hidden Stress and Scattered Minds, A New Look at the Origins of Healing, of Attention Deficit Disorder, and co-authored Hold On to Your Kids. His work has been published internationally in 20 languages. Languages, I, boy, I can't speak. In 20 languages. Dr. Mate is the, also the co-founder of Compassion for Addiction, a new nonprofit that focuses on addiction. He is also an advisor of Drugs Over Dinner. Welcome, Dr. Mate. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, the most, the most wonderful book that I have read of yours is In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. I am in, in the midst of it right now, and I am uh, challenged to put it down. I read it when I get up in the morning. I read it before I go to sleep at night. And what I love most is your approach, uh, which is a very humanistic approach to treating the whole person, not just addiction. Well, that's an interesting comment because, of course, addiction represents... Um, very much our humanity. Uh, when you, and I'm always somewhat surprised, delighted, but at the same time surprised 
when people point out that somehow I humanize the addict, then my question is, do we have to humanize human beings? I mean, isn't that who we are to start with? I think it's more... I think it's more that we have these inhuman ideas about other human beings that we have to clear out of the way. Now, when you ask people about their addictive behaviors, uh, for example, I can ask you, Lisa, I mean, I define an addictive behavior as any behavior that you crave, find temporary pleasure in and relief in, but which has negative consequences and you can't give it up. So if I ask you that question, uh, just I just want to, you know, what, what are the truths for you? Have you ever had such behaviors like that in your life? And I don't care what, but have you had any? I have. I have. I've had you uh, sport uh, shopping, you know? Okay, uh, okay, great. So let me ask you this, this question. Not what was wrong with the behavior. What, what did it do for you? Like, what did you get from it in the short term? What did you like about it? Oh, well, I got the, the, the high, the hit of getting something, some shiny little object and some notion that I um, spiked my, my happiness in the moment, clearly understanding that it was temporary. So, so you got some happiness, some momentary happiness. Exactly. Okay, now, anything, anything in human about that? I mean, isn't that what people want? Uh, isn't that what your show is about? That's other, what we uh, all want at the end of the day. <laughs> so, so when you talk to any addict about what they, what they get from their behavior, they'll say happiness, temporarily, pain relief, numbing of uh, distressing mind states, a relief from stress, um, distraction, sense, distraction, distraction, sense of control, even connection with other people. <clears throat> In other words, just as your answer, everybody's answer to what they get from their addiction is that they want something very human. So why do we have to humanize the addict? I mean, the, the, the addictive urge, although it's misguided, at the same time, is uh, directed towards our most basic human uh, needs. Agreed. But oftentimes in the public eye, we view, there's a tendency to view addiction or the addict as somehow subhuman, that somehow they can't control themselves, they are... Um, poorly educated, that they're not deserving of the same treatment or care as, let's say, a, a, a cancer patient or somebody who um, has a limb loss because this is an invisible wound or an invisible condition. Well, uh, you're quite right in, in your um, assessment, but the question is why? Why is it like that? And um, first of all, if you understand my definition of addiction, which again is any behavior whatsoever, substance-related or not, that gives you temporary pleasure, craving, uh, relief, long-term negative consequence, and you can't give it up. What you actually find, if you look around our society, is that the vast majority of people are mired in some kind of addiction, at least at some point in their lives. In other words, it's so prevalent, we can't even see it. And therefore, the reason we ostracize and judge and exclude the hardcore addict is because we don't want to recognize our, our similarity with them. We like to feel superior. We like to believe that we're different. So it's just a trick of the mind to somehow distinguish us from people uh, so we can look down on them precisely because we don't want to recognize just how common this is and how germane it is to the experience in this society of many, many people. As far as the lower class or, or the poor educated, uh, first of all, as we know, there are addicts, severe addicts, and, and severe drug addicts even, at all levels of society. Number one. Number two, it's also a social fact that the more traumatized, the more downtrodden, the more oppressed uh, a population is, the more likely they are to be addicted because addiction is an escape from pain, from trauma. So when you take a population like in my country, Canada or yours, the U.S., the native Indian populations who have been historically oppressed, traumatized, uh, really came close to experiencing genocide and certainly cultural extirpation, it's completely natural there would be these people that would be most addicted. That's not because they're not educated. It's not because they are um, somehow intrinsically deficient. It's because they've suffered more and we've made them suffer more and we continue to make them suffer more. And, 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 and of course, the addiction then is an escape from that suffering. So behind that attitude of judgment that you articulated uh, as representing much of society is actual real experience of suffering. You said something very, very important that I want to circle back to, and this is uh, the, the judgment. And 
what is activated in us when we judge another person. That perhaps it's our projection, it is the shadow parts of ourself that we then point the finger at the other. Well, you know, all the great spiritual teachers from Buddha to Jesus have said that, and, and many have said it ever since. Je Jesus says, don't judge lest ye be judged, he says. And uh, really your judgments of others are actually of yourself. And he says, before you try to remove the sliver from your brother's eye, remove the pole from your own eye, then you see more clearly to remove the sliver from your brother's <laughs> eye. And, and, and Jesus and, and Buddha says, uh, before you try and straighten somebody else, make sure that you're not crooked yourself. So, these judgments of others, by the way, we shouldn't judge ourselves for having judgments because I don't make the judgments that I have and you don't make them either. They come up automatically in the mind. It's not that I sit down and say, how am I going to judge this person? These are judgments are automatic reactions. And so it's not a question of judging ourselves. We're bad for having judgments. We're not bad for having judgments. We just means just means we have a human mind not yet enlightened. That's all. But we can use these judgments. So whenever I have a judgment about one of my addicted patients that he's lazy or is not trying hard enough or is weak-willed, which and as a doctor I used those judgments used to come up in my mind all the time. But then I can ask myself the question: Okay, hey Gabor, what is this saying about yourself? What is it about yourself that you're not liking here, that you're projecting onto the other? So judgments are not to be judged. They're just to be accepted and examined. And they're a wonderful way of getting to know yourself. Indeed they are. I, I, I want to chat about some of the new science that supports addiction being a disease versus perhaps simply a mental disorder or a lack of self-regulation and control. Because this is very... This is very different from the old school of thought. Well, I have to clarify. I don't uh, subscribe to either of you. Um, in other words, addiction is certainly not a, a choice, a weakness of will, a lapse of ethical power, uh, and, uh, which is incidentally what the legal system makes it into. I mean, the reason we jail all these people is because we believe they're deliberately doing something bad and they have to be deterred or others have to be deterred. So that's clearly false. Nobody chooses to be an addict. Number one. Number two, to reduce it to a disease, though, like heart disease and so on, um, and say it's simply a disease of the brain is also false because really the addiction is a response to life. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's a reasonable response to unreasonable circumstances. So it's, addiction is a res the, the, the first thing about addiction, we have to understand that it's a response to suffering. Now, it takes on the features of a disease. You can see its deleterious effects on the body, like any disease. You can see its effects on the brain, um, as of other brain diseases. You can see behavior and so on. But fundamentally, it does not arise as a disease. The disease itself arises as a response to suffering. And, and unless we, and, and unfortunately, most addiction physicians, uh, when they can get past the idea of, idea of, of, of addiction being a choice and some kind of a moral failure, then they uh, la latch on to this concept of addiction as a, as a primary brain disease, which scientifically is not so. Because, yes, it has the features of that, so it's not a totally false view, and it's more humane than blaming people. But it's also not scientifically accurate, because the scientific case is that the human brain and the personality are shaped by the early rearing environment. And so what kind of experiences you have in early childhood actually will um, have a huge impact on the circuitry, neurochemistry, and physiology of the brain. So when you look at the brain disease of addiction, what you're actually looking at is the product of life experiences beginning in uterus. You can already stress pregnant animals or pregnant mothers and predict that their offspring will be more likely to be addicted as adults. It's been done. So we are going to need to go to a break, Dr. Bhatia. We're going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, I'd like to continue this conversation because this is a very important point. To learn more, please visit drgabormate.com. And on Facebook, the page is Gabor Mate. And there is a hyphen between the two words. We're going to go to break. Here come those two. We will be right back to carry on the conversation about addiction from a different perspective.
happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on T-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Love is in the air, in the whisper of the tree. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. And if you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast because we are talking about the faces of addiction with Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Mate, before the break, we were talking about whether or not uh, addiction is a disease or a disorder. And you made several arguments of it being perhaps uh, a multi-level type um, uh, affliction. And I want to address the, the different levels of addiction, you know, from the, the mental, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, the, uh, the compulsions. Perhaps you can talk a little bit more, bit, bit more about that. Yes, thank you. I think there's a tendency in our society to reduce complex phenomena to... Uh, simple one-level, one-dimensional entities, and you certainly cannot do that. I don't think you can't do that with anything, but you can't particularly do that with addiction because on one level, uh, addiction is self-medication. I mean, you mentioned you worked or you, you received clients from a dual diagnosis clinic. Well, from my point of view, anybody with addiction is self-medicating something. There's almost, for example, I've been diagnosed with ADHD, so I took dexedrine or Ritalin, um, uh, stimulants which elevate dopamine levels in the brain. Well, crystal meth, cocaine, caffeine, nicotine are all stimulants. They all elevate dopamine levels. A lot of people addicted to those substances are actually self-medicating ADHD, and they don't even know it, and their doctors don't know it. Uh, people self-medicate post-traumatic stress disorder with um, with the opiates. So they're, they're self-medicating PTSD. And many addicts have been traumatized, which I hope to talk about later on during this broadcast. Um People self-medicate anxiety with uh, liquor, cannabis, uh, uh, opiates, tranquilizers. People self-medicate social phobia. People self-medicate bipolar illness. People self-medicate depression. Uh, if you take Prozac, as I have, for depression in the past, elevating serotonin levels in the brain, cocaine also elevates serotonin levels. So that on one level, just on one level only, addictions are self-medications, number one. Number two... As I tried to establish earlier in our conversation, addiction always a, addictions are always a response to suffering. It's a distraction. It's an attempt to escape. Well, in other words, we have to understand addiction as a response to intense suffering. And nobody who's addicted to anything um, did not suffer. Degrees of suffering can vary, but suffering is always at the core of addiction. Uh, then, on, a, on another level... Uh, Addictions are a disease of the brain because what happens, as I was saying before the break, that the brain is actually shaped by the early environment. The more stress and trauma there is, and and all the hardcore addicts ever worked with severely traumatized. I did not meet a single female patient in the downtown east side of Vancouver over 12 years who had not been sexually abused. Well, early trauma and early stress, even without overt trauma, shapes the brain in certain ways. So the brain then becomes more prone to be seduced by addictive substances. So it's, you can say it's a brain disease on one level, but only on one level. 
And then it's a spiritual problem because early suffering and disconnection from other people and from ourselves and from nature and from creation uh, creates a vast void inside all of us. Hence the Buddhist-derived title of my book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, because we're all hungry, we're all empty, and we can't fill that emptiness. We keep trying to fill it from the outside, which is impossible. And so that it's a spiritual uh, condition as well. It's a, it's a condition of the soul, but and I could go on and to say that it's also a social condition, because as I mentioned earlier, uh, populations that have been suffered and disenfranchised and, 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 and oppressed more are more likely to engage in addiction, such as Aboriginal peoples around the world who have been colonized, and including especially in North America. So you have to look at it on many levels, and none of these levels are contradictory to one another. They, they have to be held in the mind at the same time. And that complexity is just what's so difficult for so many people. They just want to reduce it to one entity, that it's a disease of the brain, it's a choice people are making, um, it's... it's uh, it's just a soul disease. You know, I'm saying it's all of those things at the same time. And let's go back to the point about trauma, because in, in, in my practice as well, there's not one client that walks through the doors that has not suffered and endured, continues to endure the suffering that has been brought on by some early childhood trauma. This is very important. Well, let me tell you something, which is astonishing. First of all, most medical students never hear the word trauma in all the course of their training. If they hear it, it's only in the physical sense of physical trauma. Even psychiatrists get no trauma training except in the very narrow, specific realm of post-traumatic stress disorder. But to recognize that much of mental illness, much of physical illness, and specifically addiction, is trauma-based, it's just, despite all the scientific research, which is beyond controversy as far as I'm concerned, most physicians are not even familiar with the concept of trauma and, and, and how Why it affects people. Why, is, Why that? is that? Because it's scary? It's frightening to sort of reach into the, the, the human experience that is painful? Well, it, I think there are many reasons. Uh, but one of them is just what you say, is that if I have to really deal with somebody else's trauma, I have to deal with my own. Otherwise, I don't understand it. It's just scary to go there for a lot of people. And the people don't know what to do with it. They're not trained in it. You know, so let's just look at things from the strict physical point of view. Uh, addiction is a biological disease of the brain. Let's deal with it on that level. Um, it's it's almost incredible to me, but it's just a fact that trauma, which is a major source of all manner of human conditions, is utterly ignored uh, in education and, and often in psychology and certainly in medicine. So. Trauma is always at the base of it, uh, of addiction, and, and um, my mantra, and if the listeners just recall this one phrase, uh, my mantra under addiction is not why the addiction, but why the pain, because all, all addictions are attempt to escape pain, and, and in, in order to understand pain, you have to look at human experience, and uh, whether the trauma is overt, as it is in much of the time, or whether it's more subtle in the sense of a child's needs not being met because the environment is too stressed and the parents are too distracted. But it, there's always emotional isolation and suffering at the basis of addiction, and that's what the that's the hole then that we try to fill. That's the pain that we try to soothe. And in your practice, and in the book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, you talk about many of your patients, and you talk about treating their physical symptoms, of course, and taking care of what they present to you when they come into the office, but you offer a very, very different approach to your care, and that is the application of love and respect to those places that hurt. Well, um, love in this case is not a sentiment, it's not an emotion, um, what it actually is, is, um, well, F. Scott Peck, the, the psychiatrist who wrote uh, The Road Has Traveled, defined love as the willingness to extend yourself for the spiritual growth of another person. And so that means, uh, or as Thich Nhat Hanh points out, love involves trying to understand the other person. So not just feeling bad for them, not just having a feeling towards them, but actually inquiring what is the source of their suffering 
So lovingness means it's, it's a very practical application of accepting a person exactly as they are, uh, not the judgments that arise for you, you recognize as not being about the other person, but being about yourself, so you don't inflict, project your judgments onto the other, you accept them exactly where they're at, you do your best to understand the source of their suffering, and um, and there's something else, the, 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 the trauma that we all experience, whether we were sexually abused, or whether just our parents were too distracted by their own trauma and their own troubles and their own life issues to pay attention to them, to us. The trauma we experienced of experiencing severe, uh, difficult emotions and the environment not being able to hold us with those emotions. And so the love involves being able to hold space in which the other can be with their emotions. And, and that that's okay. And that, that, then they learn how to hold their own emotions, which is what the healing is all about. Healing ultimately for all of us is about being able to hold our own emotions without despairing of them. And that's what we, that's what few of us got as children. It doesn't matter how good childhoods we have. Few, few of us got that. And that's what we need to give these really troubled people is, is, is the capacity to be with themselves so that they don't have to escape from all that difficulty. So when they have pain, they can hold the pain and not run away from it which is what the addiction is all about. Now, you know how difficult that is, that's how difficult that is for any of us, but that's what we have to provide. Well, the space holding, I think you hit the nail on the head. And actually, I have written articles on space holding because it is something that we are not taught to do particularly well. Certainly not in the medical professions, um, in, in psychology, as counselors. It's touched upon, but to really be a good space holder, involves that 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 love that empathy and that caring and not pity this is not a pitiable situation this is something deeper yes and of course that space holding also involves ourselves it means that we have to pay attention to ultimately (laughs) the spaciousness inside ourselves and 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 that means dealing with our own busy and hyperactive minds you know, and and and, our, and when we're when we're with a client or, or a fellow human being, that then we can provide that space for both of us to be in. Uh, this is very difficult for all of us, I think. It's, uh, it's exquisite, not, though, when it happens. It, when it happens, it's exquisite, and yes. uh, and then sometimes it happens, and we don't we don't even know it. We don't we're not even conscious of it, but. It's those unspoken uh, spaces in which healing actually takes place. Whereas all our training as professionals is about method, methods and technologies and what we know and facts and analysis. But we're not taught, as you pointed out, to hold space for ourselves or others. I want, uh, I want, I would love for you to once again, um, Tell us the titles of all of your books, and because we're almost out of time, and I want to direct the listeners to your website, which is drgabormate.com, and the Facebook page, gabor-mate. And the the titles, because there are several editions of the books around the world, so we want to give the listeners the U.S. version as well. I'll give you the American versions, yeah. So my book on addiction is, as you said it, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. My book on stress and health, which I'm inviting myself to come back on your program to talk to you about it once, is I'm uh, inviting you too. <laughs> okay, it's this called uh, when the body says. Date. Thank you. Uh, when the body says no, exploring the stress disease connection. It's about the relationship between emotional stress and physical illness, like ALS, multiple sclerosis, and cancer, and rheumatoid arthritis, mm-hmm. and everything else. My book on ADHD, with which I was diagnosed at age 52. The American title is Scattered how ADD originates and what you can do about it. And the book I co-wrote on parenting and the importance of the attachment relationship between adults and children is called Hold On To Your Kids, Why Parents Need To Matter More Than Peers. And at my website, there's all kinds of interviews, articles, lectures, videos, people can watch, no cost to that, uh, about all of these topics. Well, this has been an absolute 
pleasure, Dr. Mate. Thank you for taking the time to share a bit of your heart with us, um, your perspective. The book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, I cannot recommend it enough to someone who loves someone who is struggling with addiction or someone who is in addiction or somebody who's just curious about the human condition and what drives us to do some of the things that we unwittingly do. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mate. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, have a great day. You too. Bye. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Saturday afternoons on 97.5. Joy riding the coast with a global vibe, pleasing your ears and inspiring your mind. Joy riding the coast with me, Lisa Cypress Cayman. Saturdays, 2 to 5, on 97.5. KBU and RadioMalibu.net. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are having a very interesting discussion about the science of addiction, what the new science is revealing to us, what kinds of approaches work best in helping to treat and heal addiction. And with me now is Dr. Mark Lewis. He is a cognitive neuroscientist and professor of developmental psychology, recently at the University of Toronto, where he taught and conducted research from 1989 through 2010. He is presently at Radboud University in the Netherlands. He is the author and co-author of over 50 journal publications in developmental psychology and neuroscience, specializing in emotion regulation and its impact on individual differences in cognition and personality development. Presently, he works as a science writer focusing on addiction, what it's like to be an addict, and what is going on in the addict's brain. His 2012 book, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, blends the telling of his own years of drug addiction with the accessible account of how drugs affect the brain and how changes in the brain, in brain function, help explain addiction. His latest book, entitled The Biology of Desire, why Addiction is Not a Disease. This book combines scientific findings with intimate biographies of recovered addicts to make sense that addiction develops through accelerated learning, and in fact, it can be overcome through self-directed change. Welcome, Mark. I am delighted to have you with us. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for inviting me. Let's just jump right into the argument of why addiction is not a disease. Right. Well, we all agree, those of us who look at, uh, look at the brain, agree that there are brain changes in addiction. And um, there is a strong voice that defines those brain changes as, as a pathology, as a disease. And that's the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and the American Medical Association. And all those very powerful organizations. Um, 
They say the brain's changing, it must be a disease. But I say, no, the brain's changing, it must be learning. The brain is supposed to change. It changes all the time. It changes with development. It changes whenever. It changes the most when we learn new, novel, uh, and compelling uh, habits. And addiction is one of those habits. Interesting. I love what you just said, that the brain is supposed to change. And, and some of the thought behind addiction being a disease is because the midbrain is, is affected by the substance, and there's alteration in the brain based on taking in the substance, that, that that is what makes it an addiction because the brain is affected, there is a lack of impulse control or ability to self-regulate, and therefore we become addicted. And what you're saying is the brain is responding exactly how it should, well, it's responding how it should to a repeated experience of intense uh, relief or pleasure. Whenever there's strong emotion involved and whenever there's repetition involved, when we do something over and over again, then there's bound to be a large amount of, of synaptic changes, changes in the wiring of the brain. Uh, that's what it does. It does that when we fall in love. It does that when we have children. It does that when we have a religious conversion I mean, it does that when we go to war. It's, that's what happens when intense experiences come along. And addiction is certainly an intense experience. It's, this is not, obviously, it's not a good kind of learning. It's a kind of learning that can be extremely destructive. Nobody is arguing with that. But it doesn't, doesn't seem like a disease in almost any way. Disease is a metaphor for the helplessness, the helplessness that people often feel. But unfortunately, the disease label actually makes them often feel more helpless because if, if, you, if you feel that you have a chronic, chronic disease, and that's how it's defined by NIDA and by the NIH, a chronic brain disease. If you feel that you've got a chronic disease, then you probably don't think there's very much you can do about it. Mm. You make a very good point. But, but there's the argument that once it is labeled as a disease, then the the client or the addict becomes a patient versus uh, uh, holding the view of that person as somehow being lazy, unable to control themselves, and perhaps ending up in jail because there is no place else to put that person, to handle that person's issue. That, that's a pretty nasty outcome for someone with a disease. Uh, so I don't think anybody, any thinking person really thinks jail is the right place for an addict. Um, but... Um, the, the problem with the, the disease label is that uh, the chronic, okay, so, so calling it a disease does reduce stigmatization. I, I think that's what you're saying. And addicts can sometimes feel better about themselves because I've got a disease, I can't help it. But that's not really a very positive outcome in the long run. It's a temporary relief from shame and blame, but it doesn't help you make the kinds of effortful changes that you need to make to really kick the addiction. Agreed. And, I, and by the way, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on your side with this. I, I, I believe that it is helpful to understand what is going on in the brain, but the healing process is, in, in, in my view, really outside of medicine. It is, exactly. It's outside of medicine. What, what medicine can do for addiction is really quite limited. If, if you've got an opiate addiction, heroin or other opiates, or a severe alcohol addiction, then um, doctors can give you drugs that can ease the, uh, the, the transition, um, so with, uh, reduce withdrawal symptoms or the shakes, and uh, some people go on buprenorphine or methadone, some of these, these kinds of uh, uh, um, intermediary drugs to withdraw, but sometimes they stay on those drugs for a very long time, and so you've just replaced one addiction for another. And that's a very limited um, approach, and it only works for those very few substances. It doesn't work for other substances, and it doesn't work for the behavioral addictions. And, and by the way, what you said about drugs you know, changing the midbrain, well, maybe they do to some degree, but the behavioral addictions, which include gambling, sex addiction, porn addiction, even internet gaming addiction, um, they look the same on a brain scan. They don't look any different. You still see the same changes over the same period of time. And so drugs just can't be the cause. And I want to add one more behavioral addiction in there, and that is shopping, which there are many listeners who, who, who may very well be addicted to shopping, and they don't think it is a problem. Yeah. 
That's right. I mean, you can really be addicted to almost anything there. I mean, you could be a foot fetishist or, you know, I mean, and there's so many other kinds of negative behaviors that we can see as addictive, like domestic violence behaviors, uh, child abuse, um, uh, being hyper aggressive, I mean, or dominating or domineering. I mean, there's a lot of ways of being in the world that you learn to do. Uh, because they give you a certain reward and you can't unlearn them very easily because they keep on working, at least to some extent. And really, I think that's a good way to define addiction. I think it's a fantastic way. Let's talk about the social factors that help to entrench addictive habits. Right. Well, okay. So, you know, once we get past the brain, we can see that when people become addicted, there is a, a very powerful um uh, narrowing of the repertoire of, re- of available rewards. They, they do the same thing over and over again, whether it's drugs or sex or booze or whatever it is. Uh, and so they become very entrenched in a particular style of behavior, of living, uh, a very narrow social group that does the same thing, the same guys at the bar. The, you, tr- you meet with other junkies to shoot up. And so the rest of your friends and family just kind of drop off the uh, the edge of the table. And let's face it, I mean, addicts are not much fun to be around unless you're maybe doing the same thing. And even then, it's not exactly fun. It's just kind of a working relationship. So th- that's a real problem. <laughs> and that makes it difficult for addicts to come back into the what we call, you know, the normal world of, of, of social uh, social connections. And that's really important because without those social connections, well, there isn't there isn't a whole lot else to, uh, to, to that seems very rewarding than the thing you're addicted to. Well, because humans are hardwired for social connections, for, 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 for love and belonging, I think right. that when you look at um, the addicted population, they are finding some sense of community with other addicts, but, yeah. but the underlying um, whole and I've spoken to thousands of them, as, as I'm sure you have as well, probably even tens of thousands, is that sort of that, that gaping space of, of disconnection, of yeah, shame, exactly. of trauma. Yeah, I mean, that's so trauma actually lead, leads people in that direction. If, if there is trauma or adversity in childhood or adolescence, you can come away from that with, um, with wounds, with scars. Um, depression, anxiety, those are our normal labels for those, those states. And then you do something that, to try to make yourself feel better, and it works for a while to some degree. Um, but then, as you say, you lose that most powerful social um, connect, which indeed we are hardwired for. And so life gets increasingly bleak, and that's the problem. That's the feedback cycle that, that feeds addiction more than anything else. It's not a medical issue. It's, it's really a social issue. And maybe on an, on a deeper level, it really becomes a, a, a soulful or a spiritual issue. And I'm not talking about religion. I'm you know talking about sort of that that space within that internal sacred space within that becomes ill. Oh, I totally agree. I, I just recently read Sam Harris's latest book, uh, Spirituality Without Religion, and uh, he, he's got it nailed. It's uh, <laughs> you, you need that. You need to feel comfortable in yourself. You need to feel at home in yourself. That's so critical. And addicts never feel that. They just never feel that. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a pretty grim existence. And the one little light on the horizon is this thing that you do that does bring you some relief and some pleasure, um, but it doesn't last very long. And so it's you know it's kind of a consolation prize. You prior to starting our our, our interview, you said that you received something in the mail email today that was extremely positive that came in just before we began. I'd love for you to share that before we go off to break. Sure. Um, yeah, I just got an email in the last hour or so. I get a fair number of emails from addicts, ex-addicts, recovering addicts. And this one just, oh, it's just lovely. It's, uh, it's basically, I think this um, demonstrates the benefits of looking at addiction as a learning phenomenon rather than a disease in a very simple, in a very simple, straightforward way. I'll read it to you. Um, person says, uh, I'm new to your work, so I haven't read your book, uh, but today I read two of your articles, blah, blah, blah. Amazing. I feel I just came out of a trance. Having believed for its duration thus far um, of almost five years that my 
Well, I won't tell you what they're addicted to yet. My X addiction is a brain disease. Yes, by overindulgence in X, I've messed up the reward system in my brain. But it seems to me your argument that addiction isn't a disease is airtight. As you say, you can't recover from diseases simply through hard work. And since we wouldn't call learning a disease, addiction, a learned behavior, isn't one. How can anyone refute such reasoning? I've tried and failed many times to quit X. Seeing my addiction as a problem and not a disease won't make quitting easy, but I think seeing it as a disease made it harder because a disease can be more intimidating than a problem. I have allergies which can be treated but not cured. But my X addiction can be overcome. Again, it won't be easy, so I make no promises, but I like a challenge and I'm no stranger to work. So thanks for the clarity and the glimmer of hope. And um, then a couple of other more lines that, that refer to something I recently put in a post, but that's, that's pretty much the body of it. And, you know, that's the message. We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, I hope you'll reveal to us, Mark Lewis, what the X is. To learn more, please visit memoirsofanaddictedbrain.com, and on Twitter, that handle is at addictedbrain. Here come those tunes, and I promise we'll be right back. like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. So good. So good. I got Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast and share it with anybody you know who might be challenged by addiction because we are talking about what's really up in the brain and the body with addiction and what we can do about it. My guest is Dr. Mark Lewis. He is an author. His most recent book is The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease. And just prior to the break, we were talking about uh, a letter he had received this morning that gives hope and rise for the case of addiction not being a disease. So, Mark, you were talking about the person who wrote to you, um, how he or she is going to approach working with recovery from the substance or behavioral abuse. Can you reveal what the X is? What, what is it? Yeah, I, I put an X in there just for fun, but really because, you know, you can fill in the blank. I mean, it, it's just about anything. Uh, and I think most people would assume it's probably drugs or something like that. But in fact, in this person's case, it's porn. And, and porn uh-huh. addictions are pretty serious. They, they catch hold of people and people try to break out of them. And... Uh, they wreck marriages. They they wreck people's sex lives completely because they just get you know attached to all these crazy images, and uh, it's one of the behavioral addictions. It's just part of the it's part of the pack. Thank you for sharing that. And I actually I I love the fact that it wasn't a substance because our our brains typically go to a drug, and although yeah. the brain's response to the porn is drug like, the substance itself is a behavior. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm not a big porn fan, but I, I assume it's very exciting. And, you know, it's, it's probably in some ways similar to the kind of excitement you get from gambling uh, and maybe in some ways similar to the kind of excitement you get from cocaine or methamphetamine. Obviously, these are, you know, different gradations and different uh, uh, hues of, of something that, that's arousing or stimulating. But that stimulation itself can take people out of themselves and make them feel alive. And maybe the rest of the time they don't feel very alive. Uh, and, you know, that's probably an entirely different show about, you know, what we do as humans to feel more alive and running the gamut from addiction to adrenaline junkie kinds of activities, you know, uh, extreme sports and things like that. And, I, you know, we probably should do a show on that. I'm making a note to self. But let's talk about the, the present poor success rate of rehab the rehab industry, because it is a gazillion-dollar industry. Yeah, it's an enormous, and, enormous industry. And I, I think you said you were talking to me from Malibu, right? This is the hotbed of rehab <laughs> in the United States. You know, we've got probably four dozen or more, is my guess at this point, rehab uh, in Malibu. I, myself, do consult in, um, in this industry. And I see that the um, the success rate is is not as high as we hoped it would be. Why? Yeah, it's pretty miserable. Now, now listen, I'm not saying that rehab is a bad thing, obviously, um, but these we're talking here about residential rehabs, many of which charge a huge amount of money, um, and very often people go back to them again and again and again and again and again, three, four, five, six, seven, ten. And more times. Well, that's not a good thing. And that's something that very few people can afford anyway. And partly how they get people in the door is by saying, you've got a disease and you need to come here to get it treated. Well, that's the, one of the problems with the disease label is that it, it actually narrows the range of um, what are considered to be uh, suitable, appropriate treatments for addiction, whereas in fact, there are many, many, many paths to, to treating addiction. And residential rehab is only one of them. And it's got difficulties built into it. Partly it's built on a medical model. So, uh, you know, drug treatment is pretty, is, is often a central uh, um, tenet. Uh, they often use 12-step methods, which are totally unproven and work sometimes, but often not. And, you know, it's, there's, there's so many other things. There's, there's, um, there's rational emotive therapy, there's cognitive behavioral therapy, there's motivational interviewing, there's ACT, there's mindfulness meditation, which I think, which is growing. There's, there's um, mindfulness-based rehab, uh, sorry, mindfulness-based relapse prevention is a new kind of meditation treatment built on the work of John Kabat-Zinn, and it's, uh, it's showing wonderful results for addiction. Well, none of these treatment um, methods have anything to do with medicine, and none of them look at addiction as a disease. So these residential rehabs seem to be cornering the market based on what I think is at least, if not false advertising, at least uh, distorted advertising. You know, I would agree with you, because getting somebody off their substance really is pretty easy. You know, uh, you know, you, they, they come into residential rehab and they can be detoxed and gotten theoretically clean quite easily. The challenge, yeah. the work lies after those 28 days, how exactly. do you help somebody maintain their emotional fitness? Because it's really yeah. the disease gets put aside or this disease model is put aside and the addiction is put aside. It becomes emotional fitness, spiritual fitness, physical fitness psychological fitness. That's what maintains the, the, the recovery. I, I totally agree. So pe people often will spend 30 days, 28 days, 30 days, maybe 60 days in these places, and they, they're sent back to their lonely little apartment in you know, Philadelphia or wherever it is, and um, it just doesn't work for very long. They haven't learned the techniques to make themselves feel centered and okay in their own environment, and that's a real problem. That's, that's a huge problem. You know, one of the things that we didn't mention um, that contributes to addiction is the inability to self-regulate or tolerate emotional discomfort. 
you right. know, low distress tolerance. And I think that that is highly under discussed. Like, as far as I'm concerned, it's okay to have a little discomfort. That's part of life. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I agree. It's, you know, it's hard because those are the, it's not always just a little discomfort. It can be a lot of discomfort and, uh, recovered addicts or partially recovered addicts often feel alone without their substance or, um, activity of choice. And so they really, and you know, as we've said, they, their social network may be kind of, um, broken and, uh, in need of repair and they can really feel very alone. And then the depression hits and the anxiety hits and the emptiness hits and they don't have the tools for dealing with those feelings. They just don't. They don't know what to do about it. And so that's when you get craving, strong craving. And all addicts, all addicts recognize that craving is the big uh, culprit. That's the perpetrator. Because that's the time when you relapse. And that's why my book is called The Biology of Desire. Because desire is an incredibly powerful emotion. And it, it you know... It, it connects with many other neural systems, um, neural uh, activities, so that it focuses thinking and attention and memory and fantasy on the one thing that, you know, has brought some peace in the past. So, you know, desire creates this, this kind of vector, this laser beam that points you right at the thing that you're trying to avoid. Well, that's, that's a very difficult situation to be in. And that is why a mindfulness-based approach to recovery, in my view, is, is very successful. It is a, is a great contributor in helping people elevate their distress tolerance, be able to perceive that suffering and, under, and understand that suffering is a part of the human condition. How are you going to roll with it when it knocks on your door? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, actually, mindfulness meditation, I had a, I, I was a pretty serious addict in my 20s. Um, I'm a lot older than that now. But um, I, I did meditate and meditating, even while I was still addicted, I got, I got myself meditating, so that at least I could feel that centered uh, feeling, that peaceful feeling, and start to forgive myself and learn to accept myself a little bit. Uh, and that really helped me that helped me quit, which I did at the age of 30. And um, I think it's a fantastic technique. It, it covers so many of the angles in terms of emotional resilience, self-regulation, and having a feeling of, of, uh, of peace or, or contentment that you can access when you need to. What are the best ways to promote overcoming addictions, both from your own experience personally and from your experience professionally? Well, I think the first point to make is that um, there, there's no one size fits all. It's, uh, you know, people will say, well, swear by this technique or that technique. No. People get into addiction through different routes. They need to get out of addiction through different routes. For some people, uh, AA, the 12, 12 step methods work. For other people, they don't work at all. For, I mean, they're not, they're certainly not suitable for everybody. Uh, for some people, more cognitive techniques, such as cognitive behavioral therapy with a psychologist or a counselor, uh, helping you work on your belief system. For other people, it can be a more motivational, emotional approach, trying to figure out how you feel about yourself and uh, how you beat up on yourself. Um, that, you know, we carry the stuff around with us. I don't have to tell you that. And um, mm. it's people need need sometimes need a lot of work to to figure out what they're doing to themselves that makes them feel so lonely. So you know, yeah. um, there's also therapeutic communities. There are that is being with other people who have similar problems and getting the support and a sense of connection that those provide. Uh, it's you know, or talking to friends, family members, your spouse. I mean. Can, reconnecting with with one's partner can be an incredibly powerful thing. Look, I've got I've been doing this thing. I've got this real problem, and I, I want to be honest with you now. I want I want to get rid of this thing, and maybe maybe we can just keep talking about it until I I'm successful. You know, so those are all different ways that I think can help. We are out of time, and I want to urge our listeners to visit memoirsofanaddictedbrain.com or connect with you on Twitter at Addicted Brain. Dr. Mark Lewis, thank you for joining us 
Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my amazing guest today, Drs. Gabor Mate and Mark Lewis, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and make it a great day. And before you do, I want you to hear the thanks that we have for our producers who make us shine each and every week. We appreciate you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on Toginet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.